We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie and everybody listening. Welcome back. Now, how are we feeling? The listeners want to know, was Japan what we needed or was Japan exactly what we did not need with how you kind of went into the trip? Give us the rundown. Looking back, you would actually think that would have been incredibly hard to do in the state that I was in, like looking at all different signage, being overwhelmed with all the travel and the time and blah, blah, blah. But I just decided to surrender and let Harry take over. If that's one thing that he is good at and he loves, it's traveling, it's being in charge and in control of everything to do with itinerary and I just sort of surrendered to it and I didn't know like if I got lost in that train station there would have been you were basically like taking a child traveling yeah it was it's exactly Did how he put I one was of those monkey backpack leashes on you he didn't do that but he tried to do something sexual when he saw a sex store but that's another story I just felt really at ease knowing that I was semi-relaxing and I didn't have to worry about a thing so I started to have have a few baths at night and really just sit there and relax. And I absolutely love the trip for mental health reasons, but I also loved it for the bond that we gained having just the two of us. And I'm not saying that, oh, everyone needs to go overseas to have that it's just, we've been on a retreat before. It's spending like two to three days. We were lucky enough to have a week away together. And it's kind of when you know how much you love each other or how much needs to change. Mm. And we, luckily enough, every time we do this, we just turn into teenagers and fall in love again and run around. And I know it sounds sickening and I'm not usually the one to be like, ah, but it is it is such a beautiful feeling to love each other and not have the stresses so I was just actually telling your Nick downstairs we were like how can we like move this into when we get home like Like, day-to-day life because it's not realistic to go every time you feel any cracks or anything to go let's go overseas (laughs) for a week your parents would kill you yeah no (laughs) actually mum said because we chose Wednesday to Wednesday it was ideal because it broke up the week we'll go in depth in a whole episode about being parents but traveling without kids and I want to say a lot of people probably hear that and go I don't need to listen to that because that's not realistic for me right now. Like whether that be financially or like me with the age that my kids are, like it's a long time till I'm going to be able to go away for a week. But there's something so nice about knowing when you're in it, that is what the future can look like. And whether that be Japan or that be Yamba or whatever, I'm actually stoked watching you because I'm like, oh yeah, like 
when there are arguments in the relationship or whatever, I realized that right now for me, that is just because we're in the depths. It's got nothing to do with the love we have for one another. And the episode will talk all about that. Like Harry and I, our oldest daughter is 10. So, well, she's almost 10. So we have been through the (laughs) stresses and the high intensity where your chest is so tight, you don't want to talk to each other, they're sleep deprived. I think the first time we ever left our kids, the two of them, they were two and three. And like even saying that, I know people can go longer or shorter, but it's one week when you're really day in, day out, looking after kids, doing the mundane life. It's just, it's, and it's, it's a circuit breaker yeah. and it's something that we really needed, not for our relationship. That was just a bonus on top of that. But overall, Japan was bloody amazing. And my kids are like, you are not going anywhere unless we go. So I'm like, okay, now it's your turn. We will go to the park. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Welcome yeah. home, mom. How are you? How have you been? I'm good. So look, if we rewind back a week, mm. The first half of the last seven days was really, really hard, potentially some of the hardest of life with three. Mm. Kind of everyone has had this lingering cold, like no one's been, and I know that pretty much everyone I speak to has had a child sick, a parent sick, whatever. It's just going around. And I think it was one of those things that when you have just added another child to the family, you realize that you were teetering on the edge and then you're like far out. Like, you know, Poppy didn't go to daycare for two days, but she wasn't that sick. So she was still really energetic. And I'm at home with her and Pearl and I've got work to do. And, you know, and then I kind of got it a bit and I'm trying to recover from this while also not getting a lot of sleep and she's in the four month sleep regression. So it just all felt like a lot very suddenly. And I wanted to bring it up here. And once again, I feel like we're going to touch the surface of lots of things, but my mind's kind of been going over what would be helpful episodes. And I feel like, as you said, your episode would be, but I'd also love for us to do an episode on both of our experiences with mixed feeding, Mm. because I think it's something that especially as a first time mum, you may not have ever even heard of before. A lot of the time it is advertised as you're either exclusively breastfeeding or you're exclusively bottle feeding. And actually with all three of mine, somewhere between four to six months, I have introduced just a bottle of formula Mm -hmm. here or there just to take the edge off. Um, You know, it's not to try and make my baby sleep longer or anything like that. It's just been just been to give me just that little bit of extra freedom. It means that I don't have to worry about like, oh crap, there's only one thing of frozen milk in the freezer. So if I'm gone for longer than this amount, or what if Nick spills it while he's preparing it? Or what if she suddenly smashes that, but needs another one? There's none of that. There's none of that. Oh my God, I have to pump. I have to do this. I have to do that. And Nick actually finds it way better because he finds it easier to prepare a bottle out and about if it's a formula bottle rather than thawing out a frozen breast milk bottle. So he was like, I'm happy to do the daycare drop off and take Pearl with me, but I'd like to know that she can take formula before I do that. Anyway, so we've just introduced that in the past kind of week and a half, maybe once or twice a week. And it has taken an absolute weight off my shoulders. When I'm really, really tired, Nick does one bottle overnight. So I get that little bit Mm -hmm. longer stretch of uninterrupted sleep. It's just really made me feel 
in a nice way that I'm not the be all and end all. Mm, Especially when you've got three kids, jobs, it's just a lot. So to have that safety net or even just that choice of having you can have, you know, a range of things. And I actually think that, you know, and obviously there's caveats to this. Some people try this and then their bub gets breast refusal because they prefer the bottle. But I mean, that can happen with expressed milk anyway. And, you know, some people have troubles finding a formula that works for you. Obviously, it's not going to be perfect for every family. But I think that because we did this with the older two, it's what allowed me to breastfeed actually for 14 months, because I never got to the point until I did get to the point at 14 months that I was like, this is too hard. I need to stop because I always knew there was another option. Absolutely. And then so that was really good. And then the other thing that was really good is I went back to my first hip hop class on Saturday. That was the shittest. Let's go again. Yeah, girl. (laughs) I hope I had more coordination than that at the dance class. It was just something that I was like, this is for me and purely for me. And I've decided to get my mindset in the way that, and it kind of links to today's episode actually, that I have three daughters who may choose to be mums one day. And I want to model to them that although being a mum is my favourite title, it's an absolute privilege. It's my favourite and biggest challenge that I've had in my Mm. lifetime this far. That is not all that I am. Mm. And I want to model to them that they're, and this this ties in with the mixed feeding too, that I am not purely a vessel for my children. I am my own living, breathing human being with interests and needs and wants and joys. And going to that class on Saturday, even though it was Saturday morning, even though it's a busy time in the week, it was for me. And it's not just to fill my cup so that I can be a better mom and give more to my family. It's I want to fill my cup because I want to fill my cup. Mm. And it was so satisfying. And I got home and the girls watched the video over and over again. And Goldie was trying to do some of the moves and shake her butt and all this stuff. And it was just, I just felt really proud. And it felt like just this glimmer of me just for me. Good on you. And yeah, I feel like after we recorded this podcast with Casey, I was like, I don't want, I mean, there's always going to be an aspect of you that gets lost to motherhood and and that can be really beautiful. But I'm like, if my daughters choose to and can be mums in the future, I still want them to be able to keep their essence of what makes them them because what makes them them is extraordinary. So, yeah. That's my bit for the week. I absolutely love that. And on a different note, you've gone dancing, I've gone to yoga and it is something for me and I actually took it upon myself to walk out of the house at 5.30 last night and go, I'll be back, I'm going to go do some yoga and it was purely like just stretching, breathing, relaxation and I felt a bit off because the kids were running amok the whole day so I went in and I just calmed my nervous system. And as I walked out, it was an hour of my day. I walked back into that house, absolutely rejuvenated and full because I had time to myself. Mm. And I'm not saying like you have to go out and do yoga or go dancing, but honestly, if you do drive the car and you go somewhere for you, it Mm. is so empowering and invigorating. Mm. I, I just 
I don't know. I just feel like I'm always wanting to do something for myself. But it's similar to to that conversation we had with Regan Fig about finding pleasure in motherhood. Mm. And it's always framed as this way of like prioritizing yourself makes you a better mum. And I know that's a way that we can kind of like get through mum guilt and feel like it's okay. But why can't we just do things that are fun for fun's sake? It doesn't even have to be for anyone else. It can just be because you're having fun. Because you like it. Yeah. Anyway, today's episode, I think, is a ripper. Raising girls. I I know we say this, but I loved <laughs> this chat. I have gotten so much out of it. And it's actually been funny this week because I've been trialing a few things that Casey's Same. been saying. And I <laughs> I've been set, like really listening to what comes out of my mouth or listening to what the kids say. And sometimes I see myself getting stuck in like uh, old me and new me sort of phase where I'm like, Yumi, you're doing a really good job of wrapping that baby <laughs> in the blanket. Like, I, and I'm like, fuck. I feel like when you're first getting used to it, it takes so many words to say. Whereas like what you may have said before was just three words. <laughs> yeah. But for some reason, I don't find it exhausting. I think because I got so much from this conversation and learnt how empowering it can be for our daughters, I actually find it exhilarating yeah. rather than exhausting. And necessary. And, I, and sometimes Nick has said things during the week and I'm like, <clears throat> you need to listen to next week's episode yeah. because that, no, we're not saying that anymore. I, I, I gave Harry a synopsis, a rundown of what it was, and I heard him say something that we shouldn't probably say <laughs> and all he hears is, Harry, that's not the right thing. And then he sits there and he's like, um, okay, so what I really meant to say was See, I haven't let I didn't let Nick listen to the draft because I wanted his listen to count as a download. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, you have to wait until the episode comes oh, out. Brilliant. Anyway, we'll stop gas bagging. Yeah. You're like, shut up and just let us listen to the actual <laughs> expert talk about it. This episode is with Casey Edwards. She is a researcher and an author, and she wrote with her husband the book How to Raise Girls Who Like Themselves. Anyway. That's all we need to say and we hope you enjoy. Enjoy. Oh, and boy mamas out there, don't worry. She's also written a book for boys and we will be chatting to her soon about the boy version of these questions. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hello, Casey. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Bump today. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, Sophie and Jade. It is such a delight to be speaking to both of you with all the girls in your life. So thank you for inviting me on. So I'm the co-author of Raising Girls Who Like Themselves, among other things. I've written nine books, but this this one is obviously the one we're talking about today. And I co-wrote it with my husband, Dr. Christopher Scanlon. And the reason we wrote this book was because we are the parents of girls. And it was, well, 13 years ago now, almost coming up to the day, when our first daughter, Violet, was born. And I remember bringing her home from hospital. Gosh, I feel emotional just talking about it. And this feeling of inadequacy, feeling like I wasn't equipped to be the mum that she needed me to be, you know, and it was just who put us in charge? Like who allowed us to leave the hospital so unprepared with something so precious, you know, and I'd never wanted anything more in my life than to be the mum that she needed me to be, right? Which every mum feels like this, right? So Chris and I, we are researchers and we're writers. So we decided that we were going to research how we were going to raise our daughter. And before you start any research project, you've got to find out what your goal is, right? And for me, I wanted Violet to grow up 
liking herself more than I did when I was growing up. Oh, that gave me goosebumps. I reflect back on my life and, you know, as a kid, I should have liked myself. You know, I ticked the boxes. I came from a good home. I did well at school, you know, had friends, but I grew up with this deep sense of inadequacy that I was never enough. And I took that into adulthood with me and talking around with my friends and the other women I knew it wasn't just me. This is a thing, you know, girls are actually taught to feel inadequate, to feel like we're never enough and never reaching those standards. And so that was the goal. I wanted to find out how I could raise my daughter to like herself because what we found out was absolutely everything that you hope and dream for your daughter, whether it be healthy, happy, successful, kind, all of those things are easier when she likes herself. And so that's the foundation of the book, how to actually do that. And I feel like in today's day and age, it's great. We're taught girls can do everything that boys can do. Girls can have any personality traits. You know, having a girl doesn't mean one thing. Girls can wear whatever they want. Boys can wear whatever they want. Girls aren't necessarily into unicorns. But at the end of the day, should we be raising our girls and boys differently? Like, because the world will be a different place for them, right? Yes. And look, Sophie, that is a very contentious question and people get really upset with us. So why did you write a book just about girls? We should be raising our children the same. And certainly in an ideal world, we should. But the reality is from the moment your baby takes her or his first breath, the world is going to treat them differently. In fact, the research shows even when you know the gender of your unborn baby, you speak to it differently. So even parents who are really gender aware and who are so determined to raise children gender neutrally don't. Wow. Like the research shows that. They, because it's it's so deep within our culture that girls and boys are different. And because they're from coming from different starting places and all these interactions that they're having in, the, in life are different, we've got different challenges. I mean, of course, there are some similarities, you know, we mastering independence and things like that, you know, similar for both genders. But the fact that when your little girl walks out the house and everyone tells her that she's beautiful and the only thing they're talking about is how she looks and your boy walks out of the house and goes, G'day, buddy, what are you doing today? Can you climb that tree? Then their whole experience in the world is different. I can totally vouch for that in terms of pregnancy because we didn't find out what sex we were having with the first two, but we did with the third. And the main reason is because I was like, I just want to find out so that we can limit the amount of people who say, oh, Nick, your husband, he must be hoping for a boy. And so we found out, and for other reasons, you know, I was so sick that I wanted to be able to kind of have that extra level of connection. And it was amazing the comments we got about like, oh, Nick must be so devastated. He must be keen to go for a fourth. Oh, who's he going to surf, fish, hunt with? And Nick would just respond like, well, hopefully one or more of the girls. And if I was going to have a boy, it's not to say that they would be into those things anyway. But it was interesting already that it was like, oh, that's so disappointing for the dad. Yeah. And that's one of the questions we ask in our book is to really have an honest conversation with yourself. And do you wish your daughter was a boy? And if the answer is yes, then you need to do some internal work, right? Because it's going to be hard for your girl to grow up liking herself if she thinks that daddy wished she was a boy. I feel like it's a really hard time. Like obviously parenting 
whenever we parent is hard, but right now, like we're learning to speak differently. We're very mindful of what we say, what comes out of our mouth, how we're parenting. And in terms of like, when you see your daughter in a beautiful dress, instinctively, it comes out, you look beautiful, but you know, we're, we're sort of told at the moment, we shouldn't be focusing on their looks. We should be sort of saying, do you feel beautiful or whatever it is, it's it's actually quite overwhelming because I find myself stopping a lot and saying something and going, should I have said like, but I'm like, where's the rule book? I'm just confused. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't want to, I'm just doing the best I can. And some days I say the right thing and some days I say the wrong thing. But like, how can we teach our daughters body love and acceptance? Okay, look, it is it is really hard because obviously by default, we parent how we were parented. And you know, the reality is a little girl in a big frilly dress is gorgeous, right? <laughs> yes. Like she just is. But the thing is, if we want different outcomes for our girls, if we want them to grow up liking themselves, believing in themselves, having more confidence and more courage than we did, then we have to do something differently, right? We can't do what was done to us and expect a different outcome. And so what we focused on in our book, and the good news is, is it actually works. You don't have to get it right all the time. You don't have to have really huge, big interventions. It's everyday little parenting tweaks. And so just the thing about the appearance, you know, our girls, if we don't consciously change this, will receive more comments about their beauty and their appearance than everything else about them combined, right? Oh, my God. They are going to grow up in a world, unless we intervene, right, they're going to grow up in a world thinking that the only thing people care about is how they look. And then they're going to go into a world that will tell them that they are not beautiful enough because that's the reality, right? Mm. No woman in today's society is beautiful enough. And social media isn't helping in that aspect. But also, would you agree that we are kind of doing the right thing on the other side in terms of raising boys? Because I have a little nephew and he dresses up in frilly outfits and he's, you know, wearing nails and hair clips and we're saying, oh, you look gorgeous or blah, blah, blah. So I feel like we're sort of accepting or we're saying that it's okay for boys to do all this, yet Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what we should be doing to our girls, to our daughters. Well, first of all, congratulations, hats off to you. Your nephew is growing up in an enlightened bubble. (laughs) What we found out from the research is that that is not the experience of many, many boys. Right. We spoke to childcare workers whose the children's parents got really cross at them for allowing their boy to play dress-ups. Parents who wouldn't let their boy sit on a swing next to another boy because he's not into dudes. Right. So this still is what? Yeah. Yep. In today's day and age, like so boys really still are. There's still a whole idea of homophobia. There's this whole idea that, you know, the worst thing in the world you can be is a girl or girly. So Hmm. and obviously that's what we tackle in our boys' book. So yeah. I think that's wonderful that your nephew is being able to grow up just to express himself and just play and be who he is. So, yeah, just one thing that we can do, I'm not saying never tell your daughter that she's beautiful, but just make sure that you dial the beauty comments down and dial up the things that she can control. Mm. The thing about beauty is it is an external measure. Someone bestows it on you and someone takes it away. And they will take it away. In our society, every single woman is going to have beauty taken away from her. The judgment that you are not beautiful enough, you're not thin enough, you're not cool enough or whatever, right? So 
For a girl to like herself, she has to build her identity on things that she can control that people can't take away from her. Brilliant. I'm brave. I'm courageous. I'm funny. I'm kind. Those are the things we need to fill our kids' heads with. So that's who they think they are. And that's the reason they think that they're valuable, not because they're a pretty little doll. And then it doesn't matter what the world says to them because they will know who they are. Is something like this okay? Because my girls are really into costumes and I feel like if they come out of a room and they've put this costume on and they've picked, you know, the shoes that go with it, it's kind of impossible to not, you know, to be like, oh, that's so courageous the way that you put. So something I say is I'm like, oh, that's really cool the way you put that outfit together because then I'm like, I feel like that's more something they did than just the way that they look. Is that kind of thing okay? Sophie, you get a gold star. Oh, yes. perfect. Yeah, so (laughs) women on their creativity, on, you know, their expression, you know, like look at fashion and makeup too. If your daughter wants to wear makeup, that's fine. You know, it's face paint for kids, right? Look at it as play and art. Mm. They are creating on their bodies. My parents are that classic older generation. They love my kids to death, but they make a lot of comments about the way that my girls look. And I know that it comes from a well-meaning place. And I don't always want to be that person that's constantly like picking them up on things. Can we just let them do that? And then we just do the work in our own home doing the opposite? Yeah. Look, I would love to say yes to that because what you're saying is such a universal problem and it's a problem that we had in our own family. But the research shows that grandparents are extremely influential. They are so powerful in a child's life for a couple of reasons. One, because of the hierarchy of the family, right? They know that they're your parents, so they respect them. And also, you know, grandkids love it. They love that bond. So what they say really matters. But the thing is, not only can grandparents be really damaging to a girl's body image, if they do it right, they can be a huge protective factor to a girl's body image. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So if your parents, if granny and grandpa want to spend time with your daughter because of what she does, because she's fun, because she's creative, because it, they they want to be with her because of what she does and says and think, that will build her identity about who she is. But if they are constantly talking about how she looks, and, you know, it at the moment, you know, when they're little, it's, oh, you're so pretty. But what can happen is then it gets to teenage or tweens when girls' bodies put on weight because they need to. That's what bodies do to get ready to become a woman. Takes a lot of calories to become a woman. So very often in the tween years, girls will put on weight and then grandparents will go, you know, when you have the extra spoon of dessert, when you have a piece of cake or that comment about your weight, that damage can last a lifetime. And what about the conversations around like you're at the dinner table and you're doing a crossword or you're doing a game and we're all interacting and the comment comes out to one of the children, you're so smart, Mm -hmm. but it's actually in front of the other two siblings. Well, how come I'm not smart? It's like, no, you're smart too. It's like trying to get it right all the time about being mindful of what to say in front of the other ones as well because they instinctively think you're getting told you're smart for saying something but I'm not getting told. 
So smart, again, is something that you can't control, right? Mm. So any kind of phrase that is something that is out of a child's control actually can reduce their self-esteem and make them insecure. So if you said in that moment, I love that you really tried that hard word, doesn't matter if they got it right or wrong, then that's something that they can do again and it's something that your other kids can do. Well, this is where we got to when my kids started doing exercise because they all had meltdowns about not being perfect. And I said, let's scrap the perfect thing. No one's perfect. I'm impressed if you give it a go. If you do a run and you finish it and you come last, you've completed it and I'm proud of you. If you give it a go, if you actually get past that anxiety attack, I'm proud of you because you've given it a go. And that's what I'm really trying to focus on all my kids at the moment to just like Mia does handstands galore all over the house. It's one of those yo-yo things where this is the coolest thing at the moment. And I've been saying, I am so proud of you. Look how strong you're getting. Yeah. And instead of saying, oh, you know, you've perfected that handstand, I, I do see there's like a sparkle in their eye when you're actually saying things in a different light. So I, I completely get where you're coming from. And that becomes the story. You know, in the beginning, it was really hard for you to do that. You couldn't get your legs straight or whatever. And then you kept practicing and you practiced and it was hard and look what you can do. And if you can do that with a handstand, you can do that with multiplication. I don't know. Can you? (laughs) (laughs) story for your child that it's all about the process of learning. So in our house, we don't ask our girls what marks they get on any test. Brilliant. Just doesn't even come up. And so Violet, she's in grade eight and she's had three NAPLAN too because she missed one because of COVID. She goes, I didn't ever get any NAPLAN results. It's like, yeah, you did, darling. We just didn't tell you because it doesn't matter. Right. So we only talk about the process of learning. We care about did they try? Did they do something that was hard? Did they make a mistake and then go and ask the teacher how they could do better next time? That's what matters. It's not the mark. And then that's something that they can control. And this is a real shift. I know we're jumping around, but this is a really important shift in parents' minds. Our generation of parents are so focused on external measures on our kids. You know, what did you get on your grade three maths test? Fuck knows. No one knows because it doesn't matter, right? But yet the pressure that we put on their kid, our mm. kids, it's like it's going to change their whole lives and it doesn't What matters, and this is why we get anxiety, it's why we get some kids just checking out and we go, oh, my kid's so lazy. It's like, no, you've just put too much pressure on them, right? Yeah. Or we get, you know, we heard stories about kids who were vomiting in grade three before tests. You know, it's just crazy stuff. And it's because all of a sudden that's what we as parents care about. Our parents didn't know what mark we got on every weekly spelling test. So we need to shift our focus to the process of learning and then that is something they can control and then it just takes the pressure off. And also, once you can do something that you know is going to work, you do it again, right? So if you really want your kids to get good marks, the best thing you can do is not talk about marks. Brilliant. And I know we're flipping around, but that's what we do, especially with me in here. When we are talking about mirrors, 
should a question came in saying should we limit the amount of mirrors in our house because the daughter already loves checking herself out and dancing in front of the mirror is it something to worry about or is it something that's completely normal and we should encourage it yeah look i mean it depends i think it's a risk right any time that you are exercising or moving in front of a mirror you are doing it to see how you look rather than the fun of moving your body So if you want our kids to exercise regularly, we want them to enjoy movement. We want them to get the internal motivation of movement. doesn't matter what you look like in that process. But if you start to think that exercise is about how I look in a mirror, well, what happens when you become a tween and you put on weight and your body starts to look weird? Well, then you won't exercise anymore because you don't like the way you look in the mirror. I feel like my girls find a mirror in anything though. Often they'll be having like a tantrum and I notice them out the corner of their eye checking how their their performance is going in the oven door and they'll just be like, you know, anytime I like slightly take my eye off them, they're like, oh, just checking that my performance is, you know, Oscar worthy over here. It's so true, (laughs) isn't it? normal of course I remember doing that as a kid that I would have this real sulk and I'd make sure I'd go to a room that I could like just make sure the sulk was really <laughs> really realistic <laughs> no but if you do cry in the mirror it's I was so a drama dramatic kid, and you so. cry more because you're like look how yeah. sad I am and you're like ah. if we're coming back to body love so basically what you're saying is to teach our daughter's body love and acceptance is to not talk about their looks at all Or do we have to have a conscious discussion around it? There's a number of things we need to do and not do, right? But the key to body confidence, and this is what a lot of people get wrong, they think that if if I convince my daughter that she's beautiful, then she'll have body confidence. Or if you think your daughter is above her natural weight, if I put her on a diet and try and make her thin, then she'll have body confidence. That's not body confidence because, as we've already said, nobody is beautiful enough in today's society. And it's an external Mm. measure, right? Mm -hmm. Body confidence is not caring that much what you look like. So your body is something that you value and you love for something that it Mm. does. It keeps you alive. It carries you through the world. But it's also a canvas, you know. Body confidence is I wear makeup because it's fun, not I wear makeup because I need to cover my flaws and be acceptable. For example, the difference between two girls, one who has body confidence and one who doesn't, right? Say they both think that their thighs are too big, right? Because, you know, we're all going to have parts of our body that we don't like, right? You don't have to love or even like every part of your body to Mm -hmm. have body confidence, right? The one that does not have body confidence is going to be so fixated on her legs. When she goes to school camp, she's not going to put her bathers on because, you know, her legs, right? And that's going to take up all that real estate in her head. You go into being an adult and you're sitting in a meeting at work and you're looking at your thighs spread out on the chair and so you're not paying attention. The one who has body confidence goes, yeah, I wish my legs were thinner, but oh, well, I've got other things to do. Yeah. And then you get on with your life. So in our family, we do not talk about how bodies look at all. No, not even compliments or anything. It's just not something that we value as a family. And people go, oh, but that's so hard. But there's plenty of topics we don't discuss in front of kids. Mm. I would say that that's one of them. And circling back to the grandparents again. So my mom was the same as a lot of moms of that generation. Every comment was about appearance, looking your age, losing weight, gaining weight constantly. Mm. And I had to say to my mom, 
please don't talk about how bodies look in front of my kids, anybody. Let's just say the conversation didn't go well. She totally didn't agree with me because she said, when I praise someone for losing weight, it's such a compliment. I like it when people tell me I've lost weight. And I was like, well, you like it in the moment, right? But what that is actually saying is I'm watching you, I'm policing you, and I'm judging you. And therefore, when you gain that, because, you know, that's what happens from 97% of the population who lose weight, then you won't look good anymore. That's the underlying message. And so I had to say to my mum, you don't have to agree with me. We can agree to disagree on this, but these are my kids and it is really important and I'm asking you not to do that. And that's such a hard conversation to have, especially if it's even worse if it's with your in-laws. But it's so important. It is almost impossible for a girl to like herself if she grows up believing that her self-worth is defined by her beauty. And so if you're out at the shops, for example, and they point to a stranger and say, why is that man so big? Mm -hmm. I've just been saying all bodies are different. People come in all different shapes and sizes. Do you need to go into it more than that? No, so... Seek out opportunities to talk about how all bodies are different and all bodies are good bodies. Some people have straight hair. Some people have curly hair. Some bodies have more fat. Some bodies have less fat. So, you know, when you get that question on the tram, why is that person Way fat? too loud. Way <laughs> you know? too loud. And yeah. Normally, we, go, we get all embarrassed, right? Yeah. And when we get embarrassed, what we're telling our child is that fat's bad. Yeah. So on the weekend, I was sitting down and Yumi comes up and she goes, Mum, why have you got such a fat tummy? And I think it comes down to reaction as well. And I laughed and I said, look, look at my tummy, feel it. And I go, how does it feel? And she's like, oh, it feels really squishy. I go, is it cuddly? And she's like, it's so cuddly. And I'm like, that's because you were in there and your sisters were in there. And then I eat food and I had this real positive association with it. I mean, some days I can wake up and go, wow, Jade, you need to go for a run, like pull your head in. But when it comes to the overall look of how I am, I am actually quite a confident person. And I really wanted her to know that I don't really get offended when she comes to me and asks me why I have a fat stomach. However, if she went to I don't know, someone else that was a little bit older and said, why do you have a fat stomach? Well, that could be a bit of an issue, couldn't it? So if it happens, do what I said and don't be ashamed about it because what we're doing for you, for your child and for the other person is taking away the stigma of fat, right? All bodies are different. Everybody needs fat, the same as we need muscles, the same as we need bones. And some bodies have more fat, some bodies have less fat. All bodies are good bodies. They all keep us alive. And that's just the end of it. And so part of that is being really careful because what creeps in, you know, to kids' language in the school ground is fat being a negative term. Mm. So we've had to address that head on with our girls. It's like, well, your grannies have fat bodies. Is there anything wrong with them? It's like they have good lives, don't they? They take you to the beach and you cuddle them and you catch crabs together. That's just what their body's like. Something that's recently crept in, my daughter is five and she all of a sudden loves the Barbie shows. Should we be avoiding them and like old school, I mean, Disney's a bit better now, but like Mm -hmm. old school Disney, 
even this morning she had a that princess that kisses the frog and it turns into the prince and she was asking me about the storyline of it and I was like, this is so problematic. Anyway, like are we best to keep them away from them or are we best to like let them watch it but have a bit of a debrief? What do we do? So what I did with my girls, and like it's tricky because these messages are everywhere, mm. I tried to minimise it. So you don't ban it because forbidden fruit then becomes mm. really attractive, right? Yeah. But it just wasn't ever on in our house and we didn't have toys that had unrealistic body images and I didn't read them fairy tales until they were old enough to understand what was wrong with them. And then we would read them and then talk about what was wrong with them. Yeah. Because those messages go in. So say you've got a few kids and <laughs> you're sort of listening to this episode <laughs> Hypothetically, you got a few Hypothetically, kids. Hypothetically, <laughs> there, there's always a time to just learn and re, you know, implement things, isn't there? It's never too late is what you're saying, Casey. No, absolutely. And let me give you a story about Good. raising girls who like themselves. So I didn't learn to like myself until I was 40 when I wrote my book, all right? Yeah. We know that brains are plastic. We know that we can rewire our brains. So all the information, the research that went into raising girls who like themselves, I applied it to myself and it totally changed how I feel about myself and my interaction with the world. So my body image, for example, was terrible. Like I grew up with a grandmother who would put me on scales and tell me that I wouldn't find a husband if I got fat. You know, it was it was awful. So I grew up in a terrible, terrible body image, totally controlled everything about my life. And so going through all the research in my book, I've done a lot of work about my own body image and reprogramming. And it's not gone, you know, like yeah. it's still deep, but I can now catch myself and go, no, I'm actually going to choose to like my body today. I'm going to choose to appreciate my body, right? So if I can learn to like myself at 40, if you correct some of those parenting things that you've been doing when your kids are young, of course you can fix that. And the reality is, so please don't feel bad, right? If you have been telling your daughter that she's beautiful, if you have been focusing on marks, blah, 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 don't feel bad because you didn't know, right? We could not have known this. We were not taught not to do this. We just did what was done to us. But today is a new day. And if you decide today, my daughter is not going to learn to hate her body from my mouth, if that's a decision you make today, then your daughter is going to get so many more opportunities to build her body confidence than most of us ever got. Oh my gosh, I'm literally have tears. <laughs> no, and I love this because oh. it is, it does come from us as well. Like I'm in the trenches of learning so much about myself. And this is where it stems from. Because once you understand this, it kind of just trickles on through your family. We have sat down and we were talking about like our favorite parts of ourselves. And I said, mine is actually my personality. And someone laughed and was like, oh, you know, like, I'm like, but it is. That is my favorite part. It's not any body part. It's actually who I am in here. And then the girls laughed about it and they went on. And I actually find that they've got a brilliant personality, all of them. So I feel like having these conversations about, yeah, not the the body types and the body shapes and actually thinking about what your strengths are as a human being is mm -hmm. a brilliant way to start. For sure. Like body hatred is passed down through the generations. And so my vow to myself was it stops with me. 
Like my girls aren't going to grow up feeling the way I did, my mum did, my grandma did. And we can all make that vow for our children. And it's so possible because like all boys, it's it's all about their strengths that have not, even if they are, you know, a stereotypical cute kid, whatever that means. Like it's that's never what they're known for. Yeah. And so certainly we're up against it in our culture, right? Every time our kids walk out the house, they're going to get negative messages. But we get in first. Yeah. <laughs> this moment, we are the most influential voice in our children's life. We get to lay that foundation so that they are strong enough to withstand the negative messages that they're going to get. We can't protect them from the messages, but we can t- arm them to withstand it. So we touched on makeup before and you said, you know, it's okay for them to be creative and play with makeup. And I guess it's similar to like shaving your legs or shaving your underarms. Like when my kids say to me, why are you doing that? I always get stuck as to why, because actually I love my face without makeup on, but I also love it with makeup on and I find putting makeup on fun. But I just, when they're like, oh, why are you shaving your armpits? And obviously, you know, my husband, he's got hairy armpits. Like, what do I say? Yeah. Okay. So makeup, view makeup as adult face paint. Okay. You put it on because dressing up is fun, right? Yeah. Full stop, you know. Shaving is a little bit more problematic. Shaving under your arms, you do it because you sweat less. Mm. right? And you like the feeling. But really, there is no good reason why we shave our legs other than patriarchy and yeah. internalized misogyny. <laughs> I do like the feeling of how smooth they are one day a week. Yeah, we say that, but in winter, do you sometimes let it grow? Yeah, I do. Right. Okay. So if you can tolerate it. I also it don't see winter. my legs in winter. so <laughs> But that's what she's saying. She's like, really, the crux of it is for the aesthetic effect. Exactly. We do it because we have been taught that our natural bodies are gross and it's so deep within us. Actually, when I was in year seven, I was sitting down in assembly and I remember this significantly that we were all sitting in the sun, all the girls had the dresses on and every girl had like smooth, soft legs. And then I looked down at my own legs and they were hairy. And I was like, oh, how come I have hairy legs and no one else doesn't? So I went home and I said to mum, mum, can I can I shave my legs? And she's like, what for? I'm like, because everyone else at school has soft, soft legs and I look hairy. And she was kind of like, because she's very like, oh, gosh, don't listen to anyone else, just do your own thing. But I ended up saying I really felt like I wanted to, so I did. But that was my first sort of realisation that, hey, how come I don't look like everybody else? Yeah, look, shaving, it's really tough. you know. And I'm not saying don't shave your legs. I shave my legs. You know, Violet, my daughter who's 14, shaves her legs sometimes whenever she wants to. But I think it's interesting to unpack the issue and say, okay, you wanted to shave your legs because your legs were hairy and you were different. So if you had brown skin, should you use bleach? If you had thin lips, should you inject collagen in grade seven? If you had, you know, curly hair, should you straighten it every day? You know, like, where do we stop? Where's that line? Where do we say, actually, I'm okay being me? And that is the lesson that we want our kids to learn, not that they need to be like everyone else. But having said that, it's really complex and you've got to pick your fights. And so with 
anything to do with bodies, we have a simple rule. If it's not permanent and if it's not harmful, she gets to decide. Full stop. Even if you don't agree. So by the time my daughter asked me if she could shave her legs, she was in grade seven. So she was 12. She could shave them safely. Yeah. If she asked me when she was eight, then it would have been harmful. So the answer would have been no. I like that rule. And that applies to anything, even if you don't agree, but especially if you don't agree. (laughs) So for example, you know, when my daughter wants to wear a really ugly dress, her favorite one that's all tattered to go and see grandma, my mother-in-law, I would prefer that she didn't wear that. I find it slightly embarrassing. (laughs) We all know that feeling. (laughs) The lesson to my daughter that she to decide what happens to her body is way more important than my temporary feeling of discomfort. Mm. And and also girls need to know that they can make an unpopular decision about what they do with their body and how they look and still receive love and acceptance, okay? Because a lot of girls grow up thinking that they can't. They have to do what people want, otherwise they won't be loved. So I say to my daughter, that's not my preference, but it's not my choice. It's your choice, so you get to decide. Violet just got a second ear piercing, and I really don't like the look of ear piercings. And I said to her, I don't like it but it's not my body. It's what you like. And it's not permanent. It's not harmful. You get to decide. So it's your choice. And so what about like on the clothes front, for example, my three-year-old would wear minimal clothing everywhere, every day, every second, if she could. Like the other day we're having a battle because she just wanted to wear a top and undies to daycare. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say like, that's not appropriate because I don't want it to be that whole you know, women's issue where it's like you asked for it type thing. But like you've got to wear pants or something to daycare or like we'll have a whole bunch of people coming around to the house and, you know, she wants to be nude and I'm kind of like, well, in my mind that's not appropriate because a whole bunch of our friends are here and you're running around with everything out. Like how do you tackle those conversations? Well, for daycare, it's like, well, it's there's rules you got to wear pants to daycare. Okay, you know, that's like easy. You've got to wear your school <laughs> uniform to school. If you, like that's just the rule for that <laughs> one. Yeah. Nudity, yeah, that it, it really is a tricky one. Um, so for in our house, I mean, obviously my girls are older now. So, you know, my 14-year-old's not walking around naked when people come around. But we, we do no nude eating. <laughs> You've got yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Want to eat at the table because that's just a social convention. But whenever we tell our children that they can't wear something, that what they've put on is wrong. We are undermining their confidence in themselves. So girls get to the age of 10 and that's when they very often become really, really aware and concerned about what other people think, right? Like some girls, you know, they don't want to go to school because they're worried about what people will think about their drink bottle. Yeah. And parents will go, I don't know where it came from. But there's been all these micro moments where we Mm. have actually taught them that what other people think matters way more than what they think. So every time we tell them that they can't wear something, we're saying that what we think about how you look is more important than what you think. And that might be innocent at three. But when they're 15, our voice is going to be replaced by friends, friends, 
boyfriends, the advertising industry, social media. So you want them to know and practice in a safe environment that they get to decide who they are, what they look like, what they do with their body, and you will back them 100%. So they will then have the confidence to enforce that when it matters. I've got a very decisive child and I've got one yep, who cannot make a decision. Yep. But we force her to make the decision and we for praise to work really well, you catch them doing something right. It's way more powerful than correcting them doing something wrong. So when she makes a choice, I love how you just made that choice. Well done. Like every time she makes a choice, let her know that you saw her do it and and then she will want to do it more, right? So that's the first thing to do. The second thing is People become people pleasers when they think they are unlovable if they don't please the people around them. And kids can make this assumption based on the way they are disciplined at home. So if your child does the wrong thing and they feel that you don't love them anymore or you love them less, and this could be over-the-top yelling, it could be freezing them out, like not talking to them or... It's yelling. Right? then they think, well, if I don't do that, I'm not lovable. And this is really hard for parents to do, right? Because we get wound up and we're people too and we've got feelings and we've got emotions and no one can hurt us the way our kids do, right? But it's really important for kids to understand that they can stuff up, they can make a mistake, they can displease us, but we will always still love them. And you transport that into the playground too. I can say to my friend, I don't agree with that, or I can say something that everyone else doesn't agree with, but I'll still be a good person. I'm still valuable. And so that's the foundation of it. A technique to use with your daughter in the playground is to role play her speaking up for herself at home. So if she comes home with a situation about everyone said this, and you say, well, what do you think? Then role play. What do you think you could say next time? And get her to actually practice. Great. We write about this in the boys' book, but it applies just as much to girls. the girls' book. It's go zones and no-go zones. And this is something that you can practice. It's about holding your boundaries. Get your kid to practice, I don't like Harry Potter because Voldemort's scary. I don't like going doing sleepovers. I don't like Nutrigrain, like get them to actually practice saying it so they've got the words to come out. Or I do like, you know, I like Paw Patrol, even though everyone else says it's for babies or Mm. whatever it is. And just encourage them and validate them claiming their go zones and their no go zones. And talk about what a good friend is. And a good friend respects your go zones and no go zones. Yeah. And make sure friendship is a choice. It's a really important choice. And so make sure you choose to be with people who like you just the way you are. Because friendship only works when two people who are being themselves connect. If your daughter's trying to change herself to fit in, to say, go along with the crowd, I like this or whatever, for friendship, she will never reach friendship. Friendship becomes an impossible goal when you change yourself to fit in. So you have to be yourself if you want friendship. 
I love that friendship is a choice because I feel like so many friendships, especially in school, do not feel like it's kind of like once you're in one group, they are your Mm. friends and it often doesn't feel like a choice. And I feel like especially with girls, once you leave school, it's really interesting who stays in touch and who continues to be friends because I feel like all of a sudden when you're out of school, you feel like you suddenly do have the choice. That's right. So you can be friendly and respectful and kind to everyone, which is what we tell our girls, but you only give friendship to people who deserve it. Yeah. Wow. And so how do we encourage our kids not to kind of, I guess it's what we've already covered, but like go with that mean girl energy or if we think that, you know, a friendship isn't serving them, we've got to, I guess, leave that choice up to them whether they want to be in the friendship or not. Like there's Mm. not a lot we can do other than have that discussion from the outside, is there? Yeah, so the reality is we cannot choose our kids' friends for them and we shouldn't because if we gaslight them on something as intimate as their friendship choice, we are telling them that they are not capable of doing it themselves, right, and that is corroding their self-worth and their self-belief we can influence. And so in our book, we've got, it's called the Good Friend Checklist. And if you like, I can give you a link to it so people can download yeah, it for free. Absolutely. We'll pop it in the show notes. Okay. And it's a list that you can go through with your child about what a good friend is. You know, a good friend likes me the way I am. A good friend will stand up for me when I'm not there. You know, a good friend feels good to be around most of the time. And so if you work through that list with your child, they'll understand that, you know, maybe a girl who or a group of girls who aren't treating them well, they're not friends, right? And then encourage her to go to spend, she doesn't have to break up with them, doesn't have to have a huge fight. You just spend less time with the people you don't feel good around and more time with the people you do feel good around. Love it. Yeah. I feel like I probably need to know. I I remember one day, it's like one of my biggest regrets in life was that I followed the lead of one girl and was so harsh to another girl. I think it might've been MSN days and the girl's mum called my mum and I think it's the most disappointed my mum has ever been. Like my mum and I had a really and still do have a great relationship but had a really good relationship during my teens and I just remember just I just had no explanation as to why I did what I did and I put my hand up that I was also responsible but I do feel like I was kind of following the lead a lot because it was completely out of character. But, oh, my gosh, the shame I had around that in myself was just, yeah, it was awful. I think you can let that go now. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for giving me permission. It's a learning. Yeah. Friendship. See, this is the thing about friendship. Friendship is a skill. It's not just some weird mix of serendipity and magic or whatever. It is a set of skills and you were learning those skills. Mm. And I think There is another misconception that the mean girl misconception Mm. that if you're mean, you'll be popular and people will like you and they'll like you because they fear you. The research doesn't show that. The kids who have the most friends are the kids who, first of all, like the most people, right? Mm. And which makes complete sense. Don't you want to be around people who like you, Mm. right? So if your kid walks into school and they can say, hi, 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 
and they like everyone, they're going to have the most friends. But the other thing is the kids who have the most friends have the best friendship skills. Mm. And teach your kid friendship skills and they'll have friends and, and they won't need to feel like they need to go along with that pack and be mean to have friends because they'll they'll get them the right way, the way that actually works. Okay, this is a big one. Social media. Mm-hmm. Kids, girls, social media. When do we know that they're ready for it and how do we prepare them for it? Okay, so uh, Chris and I have a controversial view on this. Like a lot of the people who write about parenting think that, you know, the everything that's wrong with girls is mobile phones and you take them away and everything's fine. So let's just forget that because for a couple of reasons. First of all, as we've said, girls and women haven't liked themselves long before, long before the mobile parents phone. at their first date, right? <laughs> yeah. Also, the interviews that we did with parents of girls, you know, in primary school, like prep and grade one wanting to like slice the rolls of skin off their stomach you know horrendous stats about girls and body image and self-esteem those kids aren't on social media right these problems are not caused Mm. by media these the problems are amplified by social Mm -hmm. media okay so you need to get the foundation right first again Even if you want to keep your kid away from this, you can't because this is the world they're going into. So you've got to build their foundation so they withstand it. The second thing is you don't give your kid car keys on the day they turn 18 and go and say, go and drive. They spend hours and hours and hours learning how to do it properly. Social media is the same. It is really complex the rules you can't it's not black and white so your child needs to learn how to use it properly and it's way better that they learn it when they're young when they can't go to jail and get sued but also when you're around to help them and it actually surprises me how many conversations I need to have with my daughter about well I know that's the rule but it doesn't apply on in this circumstance so your child needs to learn that and you need to help them learn it. So what age are we talking? Because I feel that anything under the age, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I just think 13 and under, I don't see a need. Like the only reason I see that my kids would possibly need a phone or some sort of device like that is to communicate with me when they start having, you know, time away where they might walk down the road while I'm having a coffee and I'll let them have a little bit of freedom. And I don't know, it gives me so much anxiety because I know how detrimental social media can be. We grew up creating this whole thing. Like it instilled MSN, MySpace. It was a weird, weird world. And it's only getting harsh with more apps and Snapchats and things like this. And my job is social media. But when it comes to my children, like I want them safe and I don't feel that that is a safe space for children. So what age can they mentally wrap their head around? Let me break it down for you. I mean, the first thing is you follow the guidelines, you know, like Instagram, if you're under 13, you don't get an account unless you lie, right? Oh, okay. I didn't know that. That's good. Yeah. So you don't get an account. I mean, my daughter is almost 14 and she doesn't have an account for Instagram. And the reason is there are three things that happen on social, on phones, right? The first one is communication, right? And as you say, like if you need to communicate with your child, then you have a phone so they can communicate with you. A Nokia 3310, that is not a smartphone. (laughs) Okay, so there's the communication at that age. Once they get to high school, 
if they are not on, say, platforms like Snapchat, I don't love it, but if they are not on Snapchat, they cannot communicate with their friends. Right, yeah. And the research shows the kids who are not on these platforms have worse mental health than the ones who do. Wow. Wow. And the reason is that is their world. That is their playground. And if you keep them off that, you are keeping them away from their network. They don't get invited to the birthday party. They show up at school the next day and they've got no idea what's going on, right? So you have to allow your kid to communicate. And once their peers are communicating online, if your kid's not doing it, then they will suffer. So where does the trust come in between parent and child? Open communication. All right. So I would say one of the best things to do is never, ever use taking away a device as a punishment. Yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah. Right? Just Mm. don't do it because you need to have that open communication with your child. You need to see what they're doing. Also, they never get in trouble, right? Everything that they do, like I said, it's an opportunity for them to learn whether that that wasn't a smart choice and what they can do different next time. You know, if your kid's learning to drive and they, you know, do a hook turn wrongly or go through traffic lights or whatever, you don't yell and scream at them and take away the car, right? You teach them how to do it properly. You teach them how to do it properly. Right. And that's the same with the phone, open communication with what they can cope with. And I guess that open communication obviously has to start well before you're in the teen years. So what could be examples of that when your kids are younger? Well, one that happens, we hear stories about a lot, is iPads and clicking onto porn, right? Yeah. By mistake, you know, or even by curiosity, you know, boys in particular, like of course they're going to be curious to know what it is or whatever. So, I mean, obviously lock it down as much as you can. But we hear stories of boys Coming to their mum, one boy in particular, he accidentally clicked on porn and he came to his mum absolutely hysterical because he thought he was going to go to jail, right? Oh, bless his heart. So for every boy who comes to his mum thinking he's going to go to jail, there's going to be a whole heap who don't come to their mum because they don't want to go to jail, yeah. right? Or they're not going to fess up to anything because they're worried you're going to take it off them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. So the iPad at a young age is a really good opportunity for open communication. So we treat the online world like a shopping center. You wouldn't dump your kid in a shopping center at the age of five and say, go for your life. I'll pick you up in two hours. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So bit by bit, like in the beginning, we're there. And I'm not saying you need to sit with your kid all the time, but you do need to know what they're doing and you need to talk about what they're doing. And, you know, as they get a bit older, you might stand out the front of a shop and they'll pop in and look at something, right? And it's the same bit by bit you give them more and more freedom as you feel like they've got the skills to cope with it and be safe. So I've gotten to a point because I'm just trying to understand, you know, the tween section of how much is too much. And we made a decision in our household, if you would like to go on the iPad and play a game, we make sure it's safe and it's in an area where we're all around. So they're not isolated. I have a bit of an issue with seeing kids isolated in their room, door closed, iPad. So for now, we, if you want to do that, you absolutely can. And it actually makes them interact more. The sisters all get get around each other because they're in a, you know, a public place setting inside our house and everyone feels safe. So that's our rule that we have. 
Yeah, no, that that is a really good one. So we have, you know, you in the lounge room or I mean, now Violet's a bit older, she can be in her bedroom, but the door is open and we've got a really small house. So, you know, we hear what's going on. And there's been a few times where she ha- we have heard things, you know, her again, her using phones and the complication of the rules. And we've said, Violet, come here. And we've just had to have a chat why that's not a good idea. And then she can go back. Can we allow them to muck up? Can we allow them to be a little bit naughty? Can we allow them to, like, I'm thinking of the flip side. When you're a child, you wouldn't, you'd have sneaky texts. You wouldn't tell your parents. You'd do this. You'd probably go out to a party and not tell them. Now that I'm the parent, I'm like, I know all that naughty stuff. I don't want you to do it. How do you, like, surely they're going to do it. Surely we're not going to be able to tick every box as a parent. No, and, you know, it's actually an important part of their development, right? They've got to make mistakes. Rebelling is actually really critical, right? Yeah. But also so is privacy. Like if they're going to grow up as someone who believes in themselves and trusts their own judgment, we've got to allow them to learn how to do that. So with um, Violet's phone, like occasionally we will check. But what we're checking for is predators or things that, you know, are potentially illegal or harmful. We don't pull her up on, you know, the bad language someone said to her and she said back or, you know, none of that. Like that's not our business. Yeah. And so I think when we talk about boundaries, we also have to help our children enforce their own boundaries too. We need to allow them some privacy and some space. Okay, I was talking about my three C's before. The first one was communication, right? It's totally appropriate to facilitate the communication as it becomes required. The second one is creating. So the research on play shows that aside from, you know, the exercise and the sunlight of being outside, what it does to the brain playing online is just as good as playing in real life if it is real play, which means it's child-led, it's creative, and they control what they're doing and or they're interacting with people. So Roblox or Minecraft is fantastic. All right, because they are creating, they're playing, they're getting into their own worlds where they're in charge, they're trying on different personas, they're taking risks. Okay, so if your kid is playing those games, you don't have to feel bad. That is really good stuff. And then when you add in the social aspect where they actually have to negotiate with their friends, you know, they're learning really key critical skills through play. And I think this is a part of us as parents in this generation accepting that this is the new way of play because my Mm. husband's old school and he's like, I was always outside climbing a tree. We've got so much land out here. Go there. You're playing Tokoboka and you're creating little mini houses and this, this and this. Like why don't you want to go out there? But this is their generation. This is their way of playing now. It's their playground, particularly when you add in that it's social when they're doing it with someone else. So, you know, if we kicked our kid out on the street and said, go and play, they'd be there by themselves because there's no kids on the street anymore. (laughs) The kids are online. I guess it's similar to what you were saying about Snapchat. Like it's really easy to look at a group of young people who are literally together, but they're sending one another Snapchats. And it's really easy to be like, wow, that's so sad. Like back in my day, we would have done this, this and this. But it's like, 
We also communicate with our friends through phones and probably when we're hanging out, check out Instagram every now and again. Like it's very easy to look at the kids and be like, oh, how sad. That's not what it was like for me. But it's very easy to forget that often after school, I'd go home, lock myself in the room and be changing my songs on my MSN bloody, what's it called, bio and changing your MySpace page and like... It's kind of the same thing. When they are creating online, they are learning lots of skills and you don't need to feel bad about your kid doing that. It's a good thing. This is the world they're growing, they're going into. But the third C is the one that's the problem and that is consumption. All right. So if they are just there mindlessly clicking on buttons or what we do when we mindlessly scroll through other people's feeds or whatever. And we're not making choices about what we're looking at. We're just looking at what the algorithm serves us up. That's when it becomes a problem. That's when it affects our mental health because we're passive and we're just sitting there and scrolling through, right? That's the C we worry about. But with good parenting, the communication and the creativity are all good things that you don't need to worry about. So it's really me that's got the problem, not the kids, because <laughs> I feel like they're way more active in their use of screens than we are as parents. You know, we put those screens in our kids' hands and then we yell at them for using them. So let's talk about the best ways to teach about consent and sex early on. At yep. what age should this start? Okay, so straight away use correct terminology for every single body part. Right, every single one vagina, clitoris, anus, right, penis, use them all. And you can laugh while you're saying it, right? (laughs) Well, the thing is, if you practice saying it when they're little and they don't know that you feel uncomfortable, you're going to be much better when you say the penis goes in the vagina. Yeah, because they're just like, that's what it's called. Yeah. It's like saying the shoulder touched the elbow. Like Exactly. It's, yeah. The washing, dirty clothes go in the washing machine, the penis goes in the vagina. <laughs> oh, so similar. <laughs> I can assure you the washing machine one happens a lot more frequently than the other one. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, correct terminology from the very beginning. You cannot own your body if you cannot even name it. So it's it can be really hard for our generation, you know, when we were raised with front bottom or back bottom or down there or whatever. yeah. But you need to get over it. Um, But also it helps to keep your child safe. So some research shows that pedophiles target the kids who don't know correct terminology because their assumption is that they haven't had the talks about Mm. body safety. They don't have open communication with their parents, right? So it's a really serious issue. You have to name body parts and just talk about them. And also there's no reason why you cannot explain the mechanics of sex when your kids are four or five. Mm. You know, like so we wait and go, oh, kids can't know this. It's like, well, why not? Like, you know, kids on farms know how animals are made. Yeah. They're not scarred by it. Why should we not tell them? how babies are made. Like why? Because knowledge is power. We are not, we are disempowering our kids by keeping them ignorant. So people used to think, oh, if kids know about sex, they'll do it earlier. The research is absolutely the opposite. Yeah. 
the more your kids know about sex, the more open you are, the later they're going to do it and the safer they're going to be. So we have talked about sex and all the puberty talks or whatever. So put puberty books on your bookshelves right next to Maisie the mouse and just leave them there. And when your kid asks about them, just talk about them. Like you don't need to wait. And so we're really seeing that paying off. Now, Violet's coming home at 14 with all sorts of questions. Mm. And she very openly just talks to us about it. And the thing is, if you don't educate your kid, they're going to be educated by someone in the schoolyard. And wouldn't you rather be that source of information? Yeah. I'm actually impressed that my four-year-old Yumi finds tampons around the house that are wrapped. They're not dirty. Calm down, everyone. (laughs) And she hands them well sometimes. And sometimes she'll come up to me and go, Mum, this is for your period. And I'm like, good girl you know what that's for and it makes me proud and it's because we have a very open door policy in our house so they have understood from a very small age what happens once a month that's brilliant because there's still so much shame around periods and secrecy but periods are power yeah so tell your child i bleed every month because i can make babies like you like how powerful is that there's no reason to hide those conversations and every reason to have them early so then when it really matters, they will come to you as their trusted source of information. And I think it's the same as using the correct terminology. The earlier you have it, there's no embarrassment in it because they don't realise that it's mm. something that's, you know, taboo or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It's just information. And the other thing is, is if your daughter asks her what a clitoris is, tell her it's your clitoris and it feels good when you touch it. Really? Because the thing is about girls and sex, and I'm seeing this now with a teenager, there is no concept that sex is about pleasure for girls. Yes, well said. all about service to boys. And, you know, we're at the age where, you know, I'll give him a blowjob if he buys me a vape. Like there is no concept that any sexual activity is for the girl. And sexual pleasure is a human right. Someone said my four-year-old is flirtatious and loves attention from older boys around 10 years of age. Should I be worried or doing anything about that? Okay. I think when, say, a child that young is being flirtatious, we are overlaying our own values onto a child. It's not the child who is acting in a sexual way. We are, as a society, we sexualize girls by putting our values on them. You know, and the same is true when, you know, you you think a girl's sexualized because she's wearing a crop top. You know, it's like, well, to a child, it's just a piece yeah. of fabric. We're the ones who are putting the meaning on that. There is no reason why, well, sorry, every reason why a child wants attention. We all want attention and there is nothing wrong with that. And that's another thing legacy that is harming girls that nice girls don't want attention it's like well why not why don't we want attention of course we do so it's perfectly normal if this girl is actually getting attention from boys well of course she's going to do it so I don't think that there's anything wrong with that my five-year-old and her friends have already reached the stage where they kiss each other Mm -hmm. but I was really proud because I overheard it and it was and it wasn't just 
boy to girl. It was like they were trying to be sneaky and she would kiss a girlfriend and then one of the boys. But they were always asking one another, can I kiss you? So I was like really proud of the consent part of it. But then the other part of me is like, are we here already? Like, is that fine as long as there's consent and everyone's happy? Again, this is really about consent. It's not about sex at all at that age, right? I mean, mummy kisses daddy, like we kiss our children. Yeah, like, true. Thing is a social interaction that they see adults do. So, of course, they're going to want to do it too. It's the same reason they want to dress up in our high heels and handbags, right? Yeah. They're just role-playing as adults. And so there's nothing to worry about that with that. But, yeah, the fact that we've now overlaid consent is a fantastic, fantastic part of, of all of the new generation. But the caveat to what I'm saying is, you know, we do need to talk about bubbles, like your own safety bubble, right? So, yeah, you can kiss someone if they say yes, but you can't touch someone's vagina and no one can touch your vagina, all right? But you just have that as a normal conversation. Yeah. Right. So they're running around naked before bath time. And you might say, um, you know, when you're on the iPad, you can't be naked because you're not allowed to be naked on the iPad. And if you ever see naked people on the iPad, you come and let me know. Mm. And that's it. Oh my gosh, that's so easy and frightening at the same time. And is it similar, like when they start to realize that touching their clitoris feels nice and they're doing that in public is it fine to say there's nothing wrong I I know that feels nice but just do it in privacy or yeah it's it's a time and a place rule we have lots of time and place rules with children you know outside is the time you yell and you don't bring your outside voice inside you know Mm. it's just time and place (laughs) <laughs> and so, yeah, I like just tell, yeah, you touch your clitoris because it feels good, but we only do that when we're on our own in our bedrooms. What age does that start to happen? It can start really early. It can start at two or three. Like it just depends. I mean, it does feel good. Of course, kids are going to do it, but this is the moment where we, where shame can creep in, where we can start creating issues, not only about shame, but also disempowering a girl, like mm. if she goes up thinking that the only person who can pleasure her sexually is a man, that's terribly disempowering, right? Mm. You're not allowed to touch yourself, but your but your husband can. Like yeah, that's no. not the message we want totally. to be giving in girls, right? Absolutely. We had quite a lot of people, I guess it's similar to the people pleasing question, you know, we had before that how do we foster, you know, having an independent, assertive, fierce girl? but still being able to, you know, you're the one that's parenting them. So how do you get through day-to-day parenting, setting boundaries without kind of squashing that down? Okay, so the rule that we have on that is only do for your child what she cannot do for herself, right? So self-esteem doesn't come from telling your kid over and over again that they're awesome, right? That's what the previous generation got wrong. Self-esteem comes from a child feeling like they can do life, that they can cope with things in their life. So one that comes up so often, it's amazing how many educators, psychologists and other parenting experts said this one thing, get your child to carry their own bag to school Mm. and their own bag to preschool, right? Because every time you do something for your child, you are effectively saying, I don't believe that you can do it yourself. 
So carrying your bag to school is something they do every day that they can do. Now, in the beginning, it might be heavy, sure, but after two weeks, it won't be, right? So, and they will learn that they can actually do something heavy. It also teaches them to be responsible for their belongings, which is also a really important skill for self-esteem, because if you can't, you know, get your shit together, then you can't (laughs) do life. But the other thing about carrying a bag is an antidote for entitlement. You know, you don't just dump your bag at mum's feet and run off. No, you take responsibility for your things and you do it. So that's just one small thing that you can do. But we have this pressure as mums that we need to create the perfect childhood for our kids. And what we often feel by that is that they have to be happy all the time, never experience frustration or distress. So that means we rush in and do things for them when they could do it themselves. And again, every time we do that, we're saying you can't do this yourself. People who believe in themselves are the ones who can actually do stuff, right? So the rule only do for them if they can't do it themselves. But the caveat to that is if you're running late for work, then you're not going to half an hour for them to tie their shoelaces or you know that rule applies to feeding a two-year-old but if you don't want spaghetti on your wall today then you know you don't do it but that's the general principle and the it's really interesting that even at say five you are actually preparing your child for high school so when kids start high school the things that they are most stressed about it's not the work it's life it's how do I get to my locker How can I get my books from my locker to the classroom? How do I talk to all these different teachers? And so we need to help our kids be responsible for their belongings, right? We need to help them navigate space. And that is gently teaching them to be able to go places on their own. So, for example, as young kids, when you walk around your neighbourhood or drive around your neighbourhood, Get them to learn that's where the library is, that's where the shop is, that's where the school is. When you go to the shops, um, you know, you're doing the shopping, get them to go to the end of the aisle to get something and bring it back. Well, they and know then, where the lolly aisle is. Well, that's right. <laughs> Don't they, do it in that aisle. <laughs> when they get a bit older, get them to go to the next aisle. And then a bit older, you can stand out the, outside the shop. So navigating space talking to people in authority. You know, if you go into the doctor's office, you don't give your child's name. You get them to give it themselves. Mm. Practice in the car. We're going to see the doctor, provided they're not, you know, vomiting or whatever. (laughs) Um, When we go and see the doctor, what are you going to say? Get them to speak for themselves. We interviewed a principal who um, for many, many years does the first year intakes into the school. And so he's interviewing these kids at four, right? because it's the year before they start school. And he says that he can tell which kids are going to do well academically and socially. Some of them, like 18 months ahead of the others, it is whether or not their parents allow them to speak for themselves in that interview. And so the kid might not say anything useful. It might be, you know, what's the favourite thing you do at kinder or preschool? And and the kid might, like, say nothing. And then mum might say, instead of answering, mum might say, well, what did you do yesterday? Remember, we brought it home and we put it on the fridge. And the kid might say, painting, and that's it. But the fact that the parent did not answer and encouraged and allowed the child to speak for themselves is an indicator of better school integration, academically and socially. But the other thing about learning and mastery, so that is the source of self-esteem, right? Mastery. You don't feel good about yourself if you can't achieve things. 
but the road to mastery is paved with failure. There is no easy way there and we cannot carry our kids there. So that means we have to help our, our child in age appropriate ways, obviously, learn to deal with the discomfort of struggle and failure. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on and chatting with us today. We cannot wait to speak to you about boys next time um, and get our hands on your new book as well. We will link both of them, the girls one and the boys one in our show notes, but thank you so much for all you've done. And I really, really love this chat. It really opened my mind up to things, things to be conscious about, but also makes it feel more palatable because as Jade said, sometimes in parenting nowadays, you're just like overthinking literally every statement you say to your kids and you're like I just want to break from thinking but it's actually more simple the way you've put it out there and I also wanted just to add in that like throughout this episode you know I've admitted to a lot of things that I've possibly done differently and I'd probably want to do better now that we've had this chat but this is the whole point of the conversation is that we're just always learning and we have the flexibility to be able to change and make these choices for the better so we really appreciate you coming on and and sharing this with us thank you but also hats off to anyone who's brave enough to even think critically about their parenting like we're the first generation that's ever had to do that And it's really confronting. And if you are prepared just to reflect, because it's not a very pleasant process to reflect on your parenting, but being brave enough to do that, you know, really is an expression of love for your child. Thank you so much, Casey. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.